So this is one of my favorite parables, probably because I can relate to it. Who here on some level can't relate to that feeling lost and then maybe being found somehow? This parable appears in Luke, um, and it follows the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. That's what we skipped over. So naturally, it is assumed that the parable is about the lost son. This parable and the lost coin parable don't appear anywhere else in Scripture. The Gospel in Matthew and Thomas have a version of the lost sheep, but nobody else has the coin or the prodigal son as it's been come to know. Luke is the Gospel that tends to be more inclusive of the Gentile population, right? His aim is to show that Jesus embraced the Gentiles and that they were also included in the realm of God. Early commentators on this parable would allegorize it. That is, they would look for a representation of a certain specific thing to mean a certain specific other thing. And I might do a little bit of that today. I don't know. Early scholars would allegorize that God was represented by the Father and that the Jewish folks were represented by the older son and that the Gentiles were represented by the younger son. Parables were assumed to have one point, one specific bit of truth. The object of study was to determine what that one point was. Today's scholarship, though, doesn't look for just one point. The question today is, how does this parable function in today's world? How is the kingdom of God revealed in this parable for us today? Scholar and author Brandon Scott says that sometimes parables don't really have a specific point. Sometimes they are riddles and their meaning isn't always clear. There may be more than one meaning or what it means might be obscured. There may not even be a what it means. A parable is just a parable, right? They just are. But this parable seems to have a pretty clear meaning, I think, right? Lost shall be found, the wayward child will be welcomed home, those of us who have wandered and squandered will be welcomed back if we say we're sorry. God loves a sinner. When we think of the young son and his relationship to the father, we can see that this parable is about grace, it's about redemption, it's about forgiveness, it's about repentance, mercy. When we look at it from the point of view of the older son, Perhaps it touches on the more base aspects of our nature. Pride, ego, feelings of self-righteousness or a sense of fairness, maybe. Maybe this parable invites us to question our ideas about the nature of God. Or maybe to consider what's more important to us, justice or mercy. Perhaps we're asked to consider our reaction to others when God extends God's mercy to those we think might be undeserving. Certainly this parable invites us to ponder how the kingdom of God is made manifest right here and right now. Because this isn't just a story brought forth from the past to give us some moral instruction. This is a story to be lived here in the present right now that will help us to live out Jesus' vision and understanding of the kingdom of God. Maybe it's not so simple. To understand this parable, we need to understand the idea of honor 
and family that the first century people had. You know, how are the people that are hearing this story from the mouth of Jesus understanding this story? When we understand the audience for the parable, we can come to a deeper understanding of it today. When the younger son asked for his inheritance, he was basically saying that he wished his father was dead. That's quite an insult, right? Family dynamics and codes of honor were based on the understanding of the Torah, rules and regulations that prescribe right behavior and right relationship. The society was bound by a code of honor. We have our own codes and our own traditions that illustrate what we think is honorable and right, and they did too. And it's easiest for us, I mean, it's easiest for me, I don't know about y'all, but it's easiest for us to relate to the young son. Think of those times when we have asked for and received more than our due or been blessed with good fortune and misused and abused opportunities that we've been given. And then there are times that we feel like the older son, right? Play by the rules. We do everything we're supposed to do. We give up our own hopes and our own dreams so that we can raise a family and we can be responsible adults and those unworthy ingrates who have wasted their lives expect us to pick up the pieces. I mean, really, those people who have never worked a day in their lives, depending on the rest of us? We look at other people and we determine whether or not, based on appearances, if they are worthy of the help they receive. And what of repentance? Is there a specific amount of time one should wait, or should there be a certain posture that a person should take if they are going to prove to us that they are sorrowful and contrite? There are some commentators that say that the younger son's apology was half-hearted. Right? Sort of a manipulative I don't have anything to eat, so what I'll do is I'll go apologize. My dad will take me back. Your dad does. By placing limits and conditions, we act like we can be the arbiter of somebody else's grace. And when we take the role of the older son against the younger, perhaps we think the duty of grace, giving, and forgiveness is the exclusive purview of God. Thomas Aquinas said of grace that it can mean someone's favor. It can be a gift freely given. Or it can be a response to that gift freely given. It may be easy to see that the younger son was certainly a recipient of grace, grace from the father who welcomed him back, even when his request for his part of the inheritance was akin to wishing the man dead. Perhaps he was the recipient of grace the way Augustine understood it, that it was God's grace that made the young son able to see the error of his ways. But what this parable illustrates is the difference between justice and mercy. And there's a sense of fairness to justice, right? That in a just world, one gets what one deserves for good or ill. Those that act according to the rules deserve more. Those that thumb their noses at the rules deserve less. This parable turns that idea on its head. He that thumbed his nose at the rules was the recipient of mercy, not justice. And like the elder son, we think, wait, 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 not fair, not fair. Forgetting, as did the older son, that all the while, we too have been the recipients of mercy. Thomas Aquinas said that mercy 
does not destroy justice, but instead mercy is the fulfillment of justice. There's no distinction among the two. And like the father who favors the unity of his family over the saving of his pride, perhaps we can look to see where we have been unmerciful in our desire for justice and where we can realize that mercy is not the enemy of justice. My New Testament professor, Brandon Scott, points out that often what gets overlooked is the phrase in the part of Scripture where the father looks at the older son and says, Son, you have always been with me. Everything I have is yours. Because our nature, we want to concentrate on what's fair and we want justice and we want to read into the parable a competition that is simply not there. The father doesn't welcome the young son back at the expense of the older son. He tells the older son, you have been with me always. Everything I have is yours. We thought your brother was dead. We have to celebrate his return. The kingdom of God is universal. The kingdom of God is about oneness, understanding that everybody is accepted. There is no longer acceptance of some at the expense of others. The other part of this story reveals a remarkable thing about God's kingdom. It's the father who is running to and embracing and kissing the young son. Now, I don't know, when I read this parable, I think of like wide-angled shots showing a field of flowers with each character running in slow motion to each other until they finally embrace and everybody's happy, right? Symphony in the background, right? That's not this. That is not this. The hearers of this parable are not hearing about romantic reconciliation. In the first century, men did not run. Men did not kiss each other, especially a man of this father's means. I mean, if he had an inheritance, the dude was rich. It was undignified. It wasn't honorable. And remember, there were no jogging shorts back then. Men didn't wear jogger shoes, and they didn't wear Adidas or Nike. Another key point that often gets missed, men didn't wear underwear. So, what they had to do was they wore long tunics, and it was cinched with a belt, right? The tunic went down to the ground, and it was cinched with a belt. If you're wearing a tunic, and you have to run, you're going to pull that tunic up to at least your knees, maybe a little bit higher. Very, very undignified. Certainly not honorable. One might even say the father was acting a little foolish. So if God is the father in this story, then obviously God is a God who would risk seeming foolish and undignified to rush to greet those of us who have wandered away. God would make a fool of God's self just to welcome us back. What kind of love is that that abandons all formality and poise and rules and shoulds and conventions and expectations and greets us and welcomes us with unimaginable reckless abandonment? That is some crazy love. This parable gives to us no clue as to how the young son continued to act or if the older son even accepted him. Our choice 
is to either follow on the path of the sons, who would likely end up fighting, probably to the death, or we could follow the path of the father, who surrendered everything he had, money, property, pride, standing, to keep his family together. The father is the embodiment of forgiveness, and as Brandon Scott notes, is an example of Jesus' statement that those who try to make their lives secure will lose it, and those who lose their lives will find it. We are not a very compromising society. We are definitely not a very merciful society. We want justice. We want fairness. There is nothing fair about this. What is fair? What is fair? Jesus, right? A man who demonstrates tolerance and inclusion and radical hospitality and amazing love is put on trial and given a criminal's execution. Blogger David Henson asks, what if God comes to us in the form of the younger son? What if God comes to us in the face of someone that we hate, someone that we despise, someone we have deemed unworthy, someone who has proven their unworthiness over and over and over again, where can we be more merciful and simply not just more just? Where can we be forgiving, less competitive, more communal? Is there a chance that we can abandon our rules and our regulations and our ideas of what should be and what's fair and make room for grace, realizing that we are not in a competition for God's love? God's love is with us all the time. Everything God has is ours. Where can we seek to find unity? Where can we be cooperative, loving, and merciful, even if it makes us look like fools?